Welcome to the Highway Hi-Fi Podcast, where we go track by track through the underbelly of music history, using research and trivia to locate the roots of our obsession with vinyl records. I'm Joe. And I'm Ryan. Congratulations. You've reached the galaxy's finest music podcast. We're going to start with trivia like we always do, but first we want to uh, give a shout out to a couple people who've been uh, real active on our social media and have uh, really encouraged other people to listen to us, and we just want to say thanks. One is Joe Procopio. I don't know. You know, if you've listened to this podcast, you know pronunciation is not my thing. Um, but <laughs> Joe is tough because of me. Yeah, yeah, I, can, I get the, the O-E confused. But, <laughs> but uh, he's been... been uh, leaving nice reviews and telling people to listen. So we appreciate that. And the other is, I think you know him, uh, Mike Horde. Um, yep, Mike Horde. And he's always on the website and guessing things. And, you know, we just, you know, it's kind of fun to know that there's people out there that listen to us and, and are jo- enjoying us and sharing the message. So we wanted to uh, say thank you for that. Is it time now? It is, for it is time now. Trivia? It is time for trivia. Let's do it. Right, I'm going to start us off with uh, the uh, non-audio trivia tonight. I do have a clever title for this, but you don't know it's clever yet, or you won't know that it's clever until a few episodes from now. But the name of this quiz is Captain Peppers, or, if you prefer, Rejected Album Titles of Classic Albums. And if in a few episodes you get the reference and you still don't think it's clever, that's fair. <laughs> yeah, don't worry, you will. Uh, <laughs> you know, I'm going to go ahead and start writing those checks right now. All right, so um, the, these, uh, the, the premise of this game is simple, Joe. I am going to read you a working title for a classic album, and I'm going to tell you who, who it was. And you just have to tell me what uh, album title that uh, artist eventually landed on. Okay. All right. I like this. So the first one is David Bowie, Shilling the Rubes. What album would that become? The Man Who Sold the World? Incorrect. It would become Young Americans. All right. How about The Clash, Last Testament? Uh, Last Testament. My, uh, thinking that way, I would say it might go as far as Cut the Crap, but I'm going to go back to Combat Rock. No, you're last. wrong and wrong. Oh. That's last. Uh, okay. That's uh, London Calling. Oh, okay. All right, let's warm you up. All right, uh, Elvis Costello's Emotional Fascism. Uh, Armed Forces? Yes, very good. The Smiths, Margaret on the Guillotine. The Queen is dead. Absolutely. The Beatles, Abracadabra. God, it has to be Magical Mystery. It is not. It should be. You're right, but it's no. It's it's Revolver, you know. It's just a couple steps away from Abracadabra. All right. And this might be my favorite. The Rolling Stones, Tropical Disease. Some girl? <laughs> no, it's, it's Exile on Main Street. <laughs> you saw where I was going with that, Yes, though, right? yes, to, totally. My reasoning was sound. Yes, you, so far your reasoning's been sound <laughs> on most of them, but uh, I feel like uh, Tropical Disease would have been a good, good album name mm-hmm. at some point for them. All right. Yeah? Uh, Nirvana, Sheep. In Utero. Nope, never mind. Right. Oh, never like you're forgetting that one, or <laughs> nope. What? Oh, uh, ha! ha. <laughs> good one. Good, good, good Nirvana joke. Out the fact that I suck at this game. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> All right. Revert. You've got this one. Guided by voices, 
All that glue and instructions for the rusty time machine. You always end with some stupid guided by voices. <laughs> it's uh, kind of my forte. Alien Lanes. No, no. B-1000, B thousand, come B on. B-1000, thousand, B-1000. Thousand. Darn it. That's <laughs> what I should have said. Oh, man. Okay. okay. One of those two. Talking Heads Melody Attack. Remain in Light. Correct. You okay. 2 The Two Americas. I'm just going to guess Joshua Tree. Absolutely. Good job. Okay. All right. The, which Beck album was first called Zatracon? Um, trying to think. When would he have started becoming pretentious? Um, sea Changes. Nope. Nope. He, he was pretentious well before then. Uh, well, that would be uh, Midnight Vultures, the dance record. Apparently, oh, for a moment, it was also called I Can Smell the VD in the Club Tonight. Much better. Yeah. yeah. I like that one. Yeah, that I'm glad he he uh, he didn't stick with that. I like when you can smell Valentine's Day all over the world. <laughs> if you've been uh, setting people... Just uh, don't step in it. Happy, happy yeah. will you be my VD, sweetheart? <laughs> Some girls. Tropical, what was it? And uh, going right along with that theme, I suppose, is the Pixies' What Album Was Whore? Doolittle. Absolutely. And... Okay. What Michael Jackson record was Starlight? I don't even have anything to, to reference on this one. I'll go with Off the Record. Off the Wall, sorry. Off the Wall. Nope. Nope. There's nothing Thriller. Oh, really? Oh, man. Okay. It's a little record called Thriller. You might have heard of it. Oh. Here comes Everybody Wilco. Yankee Hotel Foxtrot. Absolutely. All right. That's my quiz. Got a few. I yeah, you did the big it, I mean... They're just classic albums. For the most part, the biggest ones of each of each band. They're mostly big because they didn't stick with the original crappy titles. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking at you, Beck. Okay. Uh, I think it is my turn now for the audio quiz. All right. This one is going to be really straightforward. All I need from you is the name of the artist and the song, and what you are going to hear will be six clips of instrumental sections from each of the songs. Most of them are from the beginning of the songs. Okay. Okay. No, no theme? Go. There's no theme. Okay. No. That's no. easy. Okay. Track one. Track two. Just give me the artist and song. Um, okay. Song title. It's I mean they're very short clips, so some of them are going to be pretty hard. One of them, unfortunately, is something we played. You yeah, already knew that. I, I got that one. You could tell. Yeah, I, I could tell by the the glimmer in your eyes. Okay. <laughs> hey, I appreciate the softball every once in a while. 
All right. Okay, well, I think it's now time for us to beam right into turntable talk. Absolutely. Engage? Everybody's talking at me. I don't hear a word they're saying. Only the echoes of my mind. Roots of obsession are funny things. Sometimes the origins of our deepest compulsions are a total mystery. Sometimes they are a misty mindset that slowly allows thoughts to grab on and take hold. And sometimes you can pinpoint the exact moment it was captured, like a Polaroid, faded around the edges but ever-present. The particular obsession of which we are going to talk about today harkens back to a precise moment in my youth. Eight or nine years old, I stumbled out of bed for some water. As I came to the front of the house, the distinctive blue glow flickered in our living room. On the plaid couch, my father reclined sleepily. His traditional drink, Cuddy Sark with a kick of amaretto, sat mostly undrank on the coffee table. As I entered the room, I remembered the distinctive blips and hum, the dramatic flares of music and the strong, bright, colored uniforms, and of course, the emotionless Mr. Spock. The episode we watched together that night, The Savage Curtain, was no classic. It was an episode that involves a battle royale with Kirk, Spock, and Abraham Lincoln throwing down against Genghis Kong, a Klingon, and some other baddies. But it didn't matter. I was hooked. My favorite television show was discovered, and it remains even still to this day. Fast forward ten years, Joe and I are working a late shift together and start babbling on about how much we love Star Trek. Eventually, Joe asked if I heard the Nimoy stuff, his music, Precocious in my youth, I simply asked if it was any good. In reply, Joe told me a story, the details of which are hazy, but this is how I remember it. Back when he was a kid, he had had this super religious friend that he'd go over to his house to play. The parents were adamant that there would be no secular rock and roll Satan music allowed in their home, but they made just one exception, the Nimoy LPs. Now, Joe had already been indoctrinated to Nimoy by his brother, who absolutely adored them. This was worlds colliding. How could both his brother, who had impeccable taste in the most underground and rebellious music, and a weird uber-Christian family, both be drawn to these same records? How could an actor making pretty normal folk music have this vast gravitational pull? Who knows? But Joe replied honestly, they're amazing. A day or two later, he slipped me a 90-minute cassette tape carefully labeled. The tape was an hour and a half of nothing but Mr. Nimoy. I listened to it, and then I listened to it again, and again, and again. His gentle folk sounds crossing the country to see my future wife, his spaced-out loungy tunes while stuck in traffic, his pseudo-country charm while sliding down the snowy side streets of Denver. That Maxwell XL2 tape went everywhere with me. In fact, it still resides in the center console of my decrepit minivan, and it will remain a permanent resident as long as I still have a working tape player. Nimoy the Musician was as great as Nimoy the Vulcan. Maybe better. So begins our 10-minute mission to explore the wonderful, wacky worlds of the highly illogical musical career of Leonard Nimoy. And we're going to start, I think, by honestly examining where our devotion to these records come from. The first two of the five records he made have a clear money-grubbing aspect to them. But there's also an odd sincerity and naivete to them, once you get past the Spock-Schlock novelty and silly outer space puns. A famous, beloved man singing very basic songs in a straightforward style. They're clean-cut, 
have a Midwestern button-up politeness, they're artifacts from a simpler, less self-important time. While listening to these albums, you realize that these are not amazing lost folk gems. Nimoy is certainly and clearly no Nick Drake or Vashti Bunyan, or Blaze Foley, Karen Dalton, Fred Neal, or even Jackson C. Frank. We love these records and these songs, not because they push any boundaries, but because of the warmth and familiarity they offer. What began as a money grub by parent company Desilu was rendered with purity by Nimoy. Much like Spock, it's the alien that draws us in first, but it's his humanity that keeps us around and coming back for more. The strange quality of both embracing and distancing the man and the Vulcan resonates clearly in the records, of not just being typecast, but being lost in the character. The dichotomy of having appreciation for the thing that made you famous and a distaste and fear that Spock is all people will ever know of him, which isn't him at all. Nimoy wrestled with this for years. He talks about his changing perspectives on fame and recognition in both of his autobiographies, two of them. 1975's I'm Not Spock, and 1995's I'm Spock. This struggle gives the album some heft, beyond the simple music that's played. In his final three records, there's a passion and plea for freedom and artistic recognition that comes across, though in the last of these, he does sound a little worn down. These albums were released just as the original run of Star Trek was shutting down. Nimoy tried desperately to break away from the character that would run his life in one way or another for years to come. In 1970, who knew Spock would be a household name almost 50 years later? One might even say that the idea seemed out of this world. <laughs> On September 8, 1966, Letter Nimoy became America's darling. No one, including a payment-starved Nimoy, expected a goofy serial-based western set in outer space to last very long, let alone become the franchise juggernaut that it is today. For whatever reason, the stars aligned to make Star Trek and its sticky yet compelling writing, socially aware themes, and multicultural cast work. By far, the most adored character was an emotionless, half-breed science officer named Mr. Spock, played by an up-and-coming actor, Nimoy. America was smitten. They couldn't get enough of Spock. And, well, <laughs> neither can we. And while the Spock phenomenon and the interesting dynamic this led to with fellow co-star William Shatner are all well-documented documented and an awful lot of fun, that's not what we're going to be going over today. We're here to walk you down the twisted path of how this character actor produced five albums in three years' time. It all starts with an enamored teenage fan, specifically the daughter of Charles Green, a record producer for Dot Records, which was a subsidiary of Paramount, who had a massive hit show on their hands. Star Trek was already vomiting out toys, models, cereals, lunchboxes, more, uh, all kinds of stuff. Dot Record execs started approaching the producers of Star Trek about getting out some sort of Trek album to further cash in on the craze. The project seemed like a solid concept, but no one was exactly sure from what angle to approach it. Spoken word stories, maybe? Novelty comedy record? Dramatic music, a combination of them all, is probably what Shatner went for. When Green was tasked with developing the album, his daughter gave him a direct and forceful message that seemed to be delivered from the nation itself. We want Spock. And so Nimoy was approached about doing a singing or a spoken word record. He said, why not do both? Very shortly, Nimoy was in the studio with Green, uh, who had had previous hits as a composer of the Dark Shadows lead-off track, Quentin's Theme, as well as the Merv Griffins' I've Got a Lovely Bunch of Coconuts. 
and he has also written Phil Harris's The Theme. Green was an experienced RCA songwriter and record producer, and he was the perfect musical ringmaster for Nimoy. The first album, released in June of 1967, was called Leonard Nimoy Presents Mr. Spock's Music from Outer Space, a hip and modern arrangement of space-themed and Star Trek tunes. Take a listen to the groovy Space Age Bachelor Pad version of the theme to Star Trek. But you're going to want to put on your smoking jacket first. The album, complete with Mr. Spock holding a model Enterprise on the cover, didn't shy away from the Spock with songs like Alien, Music to Watch Space Girls By, A Visit to a Sad Planet, and Twinkle Twinkle Little Earth, co-written by the man himself. I've been asked to say a few words to Earth people about the stars. You see, I've been there. I came from the planet Vulcan. For centuries... You Earthlings have been starstruck. You've had your lucky star. You kiss when you see the first star at night. You have movie stars. And you wish upon a star. Have you considered the possibility that on a star, the star people wish upon an Earth? Honestly, the entire album, though it has a high-quality production, feels a bit like a children's record. Despite, or perhaps because of this, the album was a huge success, peaking at 83 on the Billboard charts. Nimoy's star power was growing. He recounts touring with this first album and signing over 8,000 autographs in one sitting and getting at least 2,000 fan letters a week. Think Hard Day's Nights with prepubescent, pointy-eared nerds grasping schematics instead of screaming co-eds throwing panties. Though, interestingly enough, in his autobiography, Nimoy does ponder Spock's sex appeal. He concludes that the majority of Spock's fans were females and that, and this is a direct quote from the man, Girls palpitate over the way one eyebrow goes up a fraction. They squeal with passion when a little smirk quirks his lips. And all because he's smart. Go figure. Interestingly enough, Isaac Asimov penned an article in TV Guide on this very subject called Mr. Spock is Dreamy, including his personal musings on Spock's satanic good looks and bemoaning the fact that Mr. Asimov had played dumb all these years in an attempt to woo the fair sex. I don't know why that would have been in TV Guide, but all I could say is the 60s must have been a wacky time. No, no, in fact that Isaac Asimov also sent his schematics to Nimoy. (laughs) (laughs) For his part, Nimoy understood and embraced the fact that the music he was making wasn't particularly groundbreaking. In one article, he assesses his abilities when when saying... And this is my attempt at Nimoy, now that you've heard heard Ryan's. Let's face it, I'm an actor who records. I'd be terribly surprised. Not unhappy, mind you, if this singing career turned into anything big. I'm not passing judgment on my capabilities, but I'm 37 and have been an actor for 17 years. I'm just off the ground as a singer. I'm not Sinatra. That might have been my Barbara Stanwyck, I'm sorry. Certainly true, what he said, but could old blue eyes mind meld with a horta? (laughs) Maybe. Getting back on track, the record was successful enough for Dot Records to give Nimoy a long-term contract and get him right back into the studio. 
Rushed out by early 1968, the album Two Sides of Leonard Nimoy definitely plays up the I am Spock, I am not Spock theme. The cover features two different pictures. One of Nimoy sporting his famous pointed ears and the other with just his plain old rounded hearing organs. The first side of the album picks up right where his debut led off with all Star Trek themed novelty tracks, including a personal and fan favorite, highly illogical. Take the case of your automobiles. Greatest invention since man discovered wheels. Hydromatic overdrive, four on the floor. Push button windows, push button doors. Double barrel carburetors rush you any place, but you never can find a parking space. Highly illogical. The second side, however, is something entirely different. Focused on singing Earthbound songs, he's allowed to explore pop standards, folk, country, with themes of love, brotherhood, and literature. The most famously infamous track is The Ballad of Bilbo Baggins, an unfairly catchy pop tune about a hobbit's journey to take back some gold that was stolen by a dragon in the days of old. Here's a taste. middle of the earth in the land of Shire lives a brave little hobbit whom we all admire with his long wooden pipe fuzzy woolly toes. He lives in a hobbit hole and everybody knows him. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, he's only three feet tall. Bilbo, Bilbo Baggins, the bravest little hobbit of them all. The fame of the song, no doubt, is tied to its shiny happy people-esque promotional video which aired on American Bandstand. If you haven't seen it, or just haven't seen it for a few hours, we'll be posting it to our site and Facebook page. It features sweater-clad go-go dancing vixens wearing prosthetic ears and oversized buttons with sayings like, What's a Leonard Nimoy? and Hobbits Unite! The album, not his strongest effort, still was fairly popular and charted at 97. Nimoy's singing was memorable enough to get spoofed by Mad Magazine, who took his cover track of Gentle On My Mind from Two Sides and changed the words to A Vulcan's Life is a Grind, and his cover of Sonny to Money, as in how much would Mr. Schlock, get it, is making off Star Trek merchandise. We'll post proof of that cleverness on our website. Dot Records, wanting to capitalize on the first two records, went ahead and released Nimoy's third album, The Way I Feel, that same year. With The Way I Feel, Nimoy the Human took control and the album truly is a gorgeous, simplistic folk record. The Mod Podge collage cover is a full-on late 60s, and only shows a tiny picture of the ever-present Vulcan. He's surrounded by flowers and minstrels and peace symbols. The record itself may be his most accessible musical effort, more thoughtful songs with fuller arrangements. The Nimoy penned songs stand strong against the folk-tinged pop standards. His Please Don't Try to Change My Mind is a breezy cosmic country tune. Tomorrow I'll be going to just where I'm not quite sure. There are seeds I must be sowing for, my life is too obscure. There are questions I must ask, there are answers I must find. So please don't try to change my mind, girl. Please don't try to change my mind. 
Concilium is a philosophical spoken word exercise about the human condition and the need for a little peace, love, and understanding with mic drop lines like, What good is a sundial sitting in the shade? And, A poor man is not one who has little, but one who desires much. <laughs> If you can just remember that no human condition is ever permanent, then you will not be too overjoyed in good fortune, nor too sorrowful in misfortune. Nothing dries faster than a tear. And his cover of Billy, Don't Play the Banjo Anymore is perfectly and utterly heartbreaking. Of course, it wouldn't be a proper Nimoy album with a little bit of showmanship. So go ahead and take a listen to the outro of If I Had a Hammer. Well, I have a hammer. And I have a bell. And I have a song, a song to sing all over this land. It's the hammer of justice. It's the bell of freedom. And the song is the song of love. Love between all of my brothers. And love between all of my sisters. All over this land that is simply breathtaking and is fully and completely the hammer of justice indeed and while the way i feel might be the easiest nimoy lp to get into his next album 1969's the touch of leonard nimoy is the essential classic in my mind a fully realized vision of optimistic folk pop tunes about a real political awareness, the need for brotherhood, and the search for love. Nimoy wrote more of the songs for this record, including the soft scream groover, Piece of Hope, and the absolutely essential Maiden Wine, which was first heard as a song by Mr. Spock on the Plato's Stepchildren episode when the Platonians forced a serenade from the laughing spaceman. Honest to God, Maiden Wine's words stand firm with the great British traditional folk lyrics. It's a song that Richard Thompson wished he could have written. Your time hold precious for youth is your gold. Your beauty like silver will tarnish when old. Memories and dreams shall comfort you not. When the flow of your sweetness is gone and forgot. The covers on this record are great too, drawing from more modern sources like I Can't Help Believin' and Randy Newman's I Think It's Gonna Rain Today. Scarecrows dressed in latest style With frozen smiles to keep love away Human kindness overflowing And I think it's gonna rain today And I think it's gonna rain today The arrangements work well with, and despite of, Nimoy's voice. 
He seems to really believe in what he was singing, like he's singing for and as himself. For a man who fights demons about being consumed by his own caricature, that is truly an artistic achievement. The Touch of Leonard Nimoy remains an interesting, relatable record today that is both serious enough to be worth a listen and fun enough to keep bringing you back. Yeah, Touch of Leonard Nimoy was basically his Scott Four. By that point, the albums were no longer charting anymore and some of the Nimoy luster had worn off. Star Trek was canceled after its third season. In June of 1970, Nimoy would finish out his recording contract with Dot Records by releasing his fifth and, sadly, final album, The New World of Leonard Nimoy. Unfortunately, the record lacked the quality of his previous records. He had a new record producer, arranger, and engineering team that took the songs in a more countrypolitan direction, which didn't blend well with his voice and persona. Nimoy's lackluster performance also seemed to signal his own awareness that the ride was over. The songs are the fodder for the future Golden Throat's bad celebrity singing compilations and their ilk that would later bring some unfair notoriety to his musical career. His version of I Walk the Line and Proud Mary are pretty uninspired. And those are song choices he would have taken confident property of early on. That's not to say that none of the tracks on the album are set to stun. His playful version of Everybody's Talking is our very own intro music to Turntable Talk. The Sun Will Rise is an out-of-place but fantastic psychedelic track. Oh, what he could have done with an experimental producer. His Ruby Don't Take Your Love to Town has charm, like the smoothest lounge lizard at the local Holiday Inn bar on karaoke night. It wasn't me that started that old crazy Asian war But I was proud to go and do my patriotic chore Though it's true that I'm not the man I used to be I still need your company Mayor of Ma's Cafe is a perfect ditty if you need a short cry on Mother's Day And who doesn't? Cause you see, I've got a place I'm on the firm ground where people stand in line to shake my hand You see I am the mayor of Mars Cafe hey, hey. Back home I am someone in my own small way The pinball machine champion, the jukebox DJ I am the mayor of Mars Cafe Okay, the album isn't a classic, country or otherwise. But, damn, is there anything better than imagining Spock singing country tunes in an interdimensional honky-tonk on Gaspar 7? By 1970, Star Trek The Show was gone, and Star Trek The Syndication Monster was yet to have life breathed into it. And the weaker New World ended the folk career of Nimoy, just as the 1970s seemed to scoff at and throw away the hippie idealism of the 60s. Nimoy didn't disappear, though. He went on to do theater, photography, poetry, be a villain on Columbo, direct movies, including the Steve Gutenberg Goliath Three Men and a Baby. He was in advertisements, and, of course, he was Spock. And he was Spock again and again and again. Interestingly enough, long after Nimoy mania and his musical career had died down, great music followed Nimoy around. The soundtrack for In Search Of is a pretty amazing 70s instrumental soundtrack. 
and used in the seminal hip-hop instrumental sample fodder Ultimate Breaks and Beats collections. Check out the Twisted Breakout in Phenomena Theme on 1987's Volume 13. Or how about the crazy electronic and creepy spoken word record of a Ray Bradbury story on Zarelli's Soft Rains that friend of the show Chris Brown turned us on to. I'm going to be playing a little bit of that later on in our song selection, so you'll hear some of that. It's brilliant, groovy, instrumental jam. Um, all the songs are like that with digitized Nimoy, spoken story floating above it. Like he's, he's talking to us from the heavens. Could Leonard Nimoy have revitalized his career and become another avant-garde experimentalist a la Scott Walker? We'll never know. <laughs> yes, the answer to that question is yes, he could have. Now, Nimoy wasn't the only Trek actor to get into the business. Shatner's 1968 legendary Slab of Ham spoken word transformed man album is well documented and rehashed in the internet age. His version of Mr. Tambourine Man is admittedly pretty magnificent. Some of the finer and funnier Nimoy and Shatner tunes were compiled and released together on Spaced Out CD in 1996, which is still the easiest way to hear Nimoy without tracking down all the LPs. Nichelle Nichols had a loungy 1967 record called Down to Earth and a psychedelic, easy-listening 1974 7-inch called Dark Side of the Moon. She probably heard a different album with that same title and thought, maybe I should ride that. Um, Brent Spiner, Mr. Data himself, embraced his singing android self with Old Yellow Eyes is back in 1991. It was Sinatra-style singing of pop standards that sounds pretty much like you'd expect. Um, Spiner even got the bridge crew together as his backup singing quartet, The Sunspots. We're talking Picard, Riker, Jordy, and of course, that honey-throated clean-on, Worf. Make that so. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Stuart, Frakes, Burton, and Dorn, unfortunately, do not sing in character. I repeat, they don't sing in character. But <laughs> it's still worth hearing, and uh, we'll post a link for you. Heck, even yeoman Janice Rand, uh, Grace Lee Whitney had a 1976 dance single, Take a Star Trip, with the uh, more memorably named B-side, Disco Trekkin'. The Star Trek merchandising madness boldly goes. And while Shatner, who never had the artistic sensibility nor the ability or desire to reduce the actor factor, had an admittedly pretty fun 2004 comeback album with Ben Folds called Has Been, Nimoy never has enjoyed a similar musical resurgence. Sadly, unless this podcast takes off, Nimoy's bizarre and brilliant musical career will never be remembered or honored as this humble fanboy thinks it ought. And though the songs of Mr. Spock may be lost in the niche world of pop culture, one cannot consider Nimoy's musical misadventures anything less than fascinating. Fortunately, there is an awesome community of Nimoy fans, in particular a defunct website called Maiden Wine, the musical touch of Leonard Nimoy, created by Joe and Darlene Lacey, that was absolutely essential in writing this episode, and had an amazing and lovingly exhaustive history of Nimoy's musical pursuits. The website was created with the quixotic mission of getting Leonard Nimoy box set printed. Um, good luck with that. As of now, other than a one-off Record Store Day version of Mr. Spock's music from outer space, the LPs remain tragically out of print. Oh, That's too bad. I know we did a lot of that kind of tongue-in-cheeky, but we really, I, I really like these albums. I, I play them not as novelty. I play them because I really enjoy them. Absolutely. And um, they're out there. Like, if you, if you look at record stores, you will come across them. We, when, yep. when we were in Tampa, I think we saw 
two of them. One of them was that record store day version, mm-hmm. but we saw an original too. They're not, I mean, you're not going to see them every time you go to a record store, but they, they are, they are out there. And the last three are worth tracking, tracking down and are certainly yeah. in my opinion. So yeah, absolutely. I mean, all of them are uh, because the first two are just a lot of fun anyway, even if they're not as, uh, they lack some of the sensibility, but they're fun. And then the last ones are amazing. Two of the last three are amazing. Yeah. It's records that there's really no reason that, that I should like as much as I do, but I had listened to them all the time. That tape, I still play that tape all the time. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's time now to play a few songs. I'm going first today with a song that I talked about briefly in the Turntable Talk. This is Zarelli with a song called Electric Wind, Vocals by Nimoy. Two o'clock sang a voice. Delicately sensing decay at last, the regiments of mice hummed out as softly as blown gray leaves in an electrical wind. 2.15. The dog was gone. In the cellar, the incinerator glowed suddenly, and a whirl of sparks leaped up the chimney. 2.35. Bridge tables sprouted from patio walls. Playing cards fluttered onto pads in a shower of pips. Martinis manifested on an open bench with egg salad sandwiches. Music played. But the tables were silent and the cards untouched. At four o'clock, the tables folded like great butterflies back through the paneled walls. Okay, that was Zarelli with a song called Electric Wind. And again, you obviously, there's Letter Nimoy speaking on there. This was released in 2015 by a guy who's calling himself Zarelli for, for this release. His real name is Carwin Ellis. He's the lead singer of a band called Colorama. He's also collaborated with Edwin Collins a lot. And he's currently the member of the Pretenders touring band. This was released on the label Series of Phonos. Uh, the album name is Soft Rains, and it features a 1975 recording of Leonard Nimoy reading the Ray Bradbury story, There Will Come Soft Rains, from his 1950 book, The Martian Chronicles. Series of Phonos has only a few releases so far. They focus mostly on soundtracks and spoken word and kind of oddball stuff. The artwork, though, you should go online and just look at their, go to their website and look at the pictures of their album covers. They're great. The artwork on their releases is all based on a library music series designed by Julian Montague. It is the 70s. It screams the 1970s. One of their reissues is that I was really, I really want to get, is the soundtrack for a Roman Polanski movie called The Fearless Vampire Killers, which I probably saw 10 times when I was in high school. It's horrible. The music on the Zarelli album 
uh, is just sounds like creepy space age exotica. Uh, it's kind of just runs the spectrum of library music in general, and hopefully we'll find some time soon to talk about that with everybody. And that's my first track. All right, I'm going to go ahead and play uh, play one for you. This is a song called Hollywood by an artist named Goldberg. Back in 52 Technicolor ladies climbing stairway to the moon 100 naked chorus girls live in my room Mad piano player plays a tune Hollywood, you drove me crazy Made a dreamer out of me a 1974 uh, essentially private press record called Misty Flats. We spoke that Nimoy was not like this lost loner folk gem. This guy is. He, he really is just this released this crazy amazing folk album in the 70s that nobody heard. Um, 23-year-old Minnesotan Barry Thomas Goldberg left his power pop band The Batch he claims he was listless and, and full of creative energy, and he wanted to make the first punk album, which that was 1974, so he probably could have. Um, but he got together with this uh, with his buddy, Michael Yonkers, who's kind of a Minneapolis legend, too, especially he has ability to Frankenstein together guitars and effects pedals. But Yonkers convinced Goldberg that he should just record an old-school-type record. No stereo, only mono, simple... Just voice and guitar, no overdubs, that sort of stuff. So they laid down this bare, simple songs, and they strummed on the Ampax two-track record recorder. And so the resulting album is this stark, questioning record that's equally beautiful and dark. It's a reflection on Goldberg's youth, where he saw his mom struggle in odd jobs in Hollywood and Vegas. So... Yonkers had 500 copies pressed on his own label imprint, or, or label, Michael Yonkers, 
label, I guess. And that was it. They didn't do anything. Goldberg kind of continues a mission, musician around the Twin Cities, but his solo album was just gone to the wind. And then, in 2015, Future Days recording, which is associated with Light in the Attic, gave it a second life. And the album started getting positive reviews. They were reviewed positively No Depression and kind of made the rounds on blogs and music rags and uh, eventually found a place in many Happy Homes record collections. And, and it's rightfully so. It's just a beautiful, dark folk album that doesn't sound a lot like many of the other folk albums from the time. It's, it's leaves a lot, little bit more space, if that makes any sense. Uh, so... Anyways, uh, that's my first song. Interesting side note about Goldberg is that in the mid-90s, he beefed up and he shaved his head and he rose to prominence in the WCW wrestling and entertainment sports industry. Uh, He had a historic string of undefeated match and and he uh, had a signature finishing move called the jackhammer. (laughs) That's, that's, That's not, that's not real. It might be real. Maybe different Goldberg. Okay, I guess it's still my song. All right, let me go ahead and play you my second song. This is uh, Chris Christopherson, and the name of the song is Same Old Song. I was just a young man Working steady in a good time band Picking every single little lick I could Just to please a man Harlan sang the lead for half And we split up the rest Hanging on through the heavy times And hoping for the best I can't recall the names of all them places That we played in all them squirrely party girls and pills we used to pop Hardly ever sleeping in them cheap motels we stayed in Hoping we could take it till we'd make it to the top And them nights got a little bit brighter And them bars Same old song Now with stars and shining On them primetime TV shows If a stranger knows our name And every little where we go Finding out the bottom Ain't so different from the top Just a few more friends That you be losing drop and I've left some of my soul on every sweaty sheet that I could sleep on getting just as close to anybody as I could I don't regret a single bed I've laid my body down on ever since the first I had the worst I had was good 
In uh, 1974, Rose Scholar and bare-chested troubadour Chris Christopherson was at the top of his game. He'd had a series of good-selling solo releases that had followed many, many productive years as a, as a songwriter. He was also starting to establish himself as an actor, particularly he'd just starred in Sam Peckinpah's Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid. But his lifestyle and fame was starting to catch up to him, and he went to the studio, and being the thoughtful, literative man that he is, he produced this crazy, fantastic, dark album that focuses on the crushing nature of fame and substance abuse. The name of that record was Spooky Lady Sideshow. The record's all about falling apart when you're getting famous, and the drugs and, and everything that goes along with that. And so interestingly enough, the content of the album turned out to be somewhat of a self-fulfilling prophecy. The record company, whether they thought he was already established enough or they'd heard the record and said, we're not going to touch that, they didn't promote Spooky Lady Shy's show at all, and it flopped commercially. And it was the first time in his career, really, where he was not successful and that kind of ended his career as a hit country star. Now, he did fine. He softened up and sang with Barbara Streisand, and he, he did great acting. So, he, you know, don't worry about Christofferson. But, you know, it really killed his career as a country singer. I played the song tonight because it's in contrast to Nimoy's reflections on fame. Christofferson said it's kind of a different light on how one can decline so fast and fall apart so fully right in front of the entire world to see. Same old song really captures the essence of this amazing album. It's a reflective, boozy song about one's own rise and fall and the ability or inability to deal with the substances so intertwined with fame. Lyrically, there's great depth. Christofferson was just a master of eliciting mood through simple couplets. So the album really is kind of one of those entire piece albums, but I think the lead-off track kind of sets the self-destruction into gear. Yeah, that that album along with Silver Tongue Devil are those are my two favorite Christofferson albums. I think it's wonderful. I wish he had gotten the the due that that it deserved, because maybe he would have made more dark, cool albums or or any any kind of album like the the track he was on at least. All right, my last song almost. <laughs> this will be our fourth song. We have a we have a surprise for you kids. But this song, and you're gonna have to trust me on this. This is Lou Rawls with his cover of Donovan's Season of the Witch. When I look out my window so many sights to see And when I look in my window So many different people to be That it's strange Yeah So strange 
Okay, cool, right? That was Lou Rawls with his cover of Season of the Witch, the Donovan song. This was released in 1969 on, on his album, The Way It Was, The Way It Is, uh, from Capitol Records. The entire album is produced by David Axelrod, which is why it sounds so cool and why Lou Reed, uh, Lou Reed, Lou Rawls sounds so, so amazing on it. This is the best thing he ever did. The whole album is amazing. He sounds so cool in this. Even on the cover, he's wearing an all-black leather. I think maybe that's why I said Lou Reed. He looks cool. He sounds great. The album is awesome. Uh, I don't have a whole lot more to say about it. You should just get it. And you should get anything that says David Axelrod produced it. He's a producer of some really great jazz funk and soul. Uh, just all-around good, good stuff. Really good producer. So now, Joe, did you say that we have a uh, bonus song? Yes. Ryan, Ryan, is it? Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> we do have a bonus song. <laughs> it is something that we stumbled upon while we were doing all this Nimoy research. And I think a lawyer may need to contact this Zarelli fellow. Because what we have for you is a lost Nimoy track. And that Zarelli album came out in 2015. I think this was probably 2014 and a half. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to play you this Nimoy track. And you are going to love it. Here you go. May we start? Oh! Oh! Thank you. Cartoons, all of them, excuse me. Crafts, all of them, excuse me. Ah, excuse me. For people who know and love home entertainment. Go back. For people who know and love home entertainment. But how can that be possible? Hmm. I understand. I'm Leonard Nimoy, hitting a golf ball. I'm Leonard Nimoy, moving from the inside out. I'm Leonard Nimoy. The rest is obvious. This is amazing.
What does it pull? Oh. Show me more super concerts by top entertainers and more cartoons. I understand. Slow motion. I understand. Play. Home entertainment. Ah. Yes. Well. But how can that be possible? Oh. So there you have it. Okay, that was an untitled Nimoy Lost track uh, that's uh, we well we we goofily and possibly drunkenly put together one night. Roy took us about as long as that song is to get that thing together, and all the audio from that is pulled from one sweet ass Magnavox laser disc YouTube video that we found. It's great. It features a really nice Leonard Nimoy mustache, which I wish we could have fit into the song somehow. Did he mention the mustache in the commercial? He does. He doesn't. Doesn't. No, he's too busy communicating with a little robot, like the one in Wally, the clean white robot. Kind of looks like that. He likes to kind of exert his his uh, fame over that robot. Like the robot kind of beeps and beeps at him, and, and he says, "Of course I understand you. I'm Leonard Nimoy." He's condescending. Oh yeah. I mean, that was the that was the height of his powers. He had just made three men and a baby. With that mustache, my goodness. <laughs> yeah, he was, he was a force to be reckoned with, for sure. I think now it's time to finish up that trivia. So, I'm going to go ahead and, again, I'm going to play the six clips I have, all instrumental, very short, uh, which is probably the tricky part, and all I need from you is the artist and the song title. So, here we go. Track one. <laughs> Okay, the first track is definitely the beat happening. I don't know. 
I don't know rightly the name of the song. I'm going to guess uh, Pajama Party at the Haunted House. No, Pajama Party at a Haunted House was uh, Beck's. That was a title Beck didn't use. This song <laughs> is called Catwalk. Very good. All right. Yeah. Number two is definitely the five, six, seven, eights. And I think the song was just called Woohoo. Yep, exactly. All right. The third song is titled Love Itis, but I cannot for the life of me remember who, who sings it. It's uh, one of Milwaukee's finest. Harvey Scales. Harvey, love Itis. Harvey yep. Scales. That is great Northern Soul dance track. Yeah, that song awesome. is really, really good. Uh, the fourth song is Mott the Hoople, or Mott the Hopple, depending on <laughs> tomato or tomato, how you land on that. Um, Moot the Hopple. <laughs> and the song, I think, is the leadoff track all the way to Memphis. It is. Yep. That album is. I, I don't know if I've talked about it on the podcast before, but I know I've talked about it with you. I don't understand why that album isn't so much more highly acclaimed. It is just a great glam album, as good as what Bowie was putting out. Well, close to as good as what Bowie was putting out. But you yeah. can find it for like $2 in bargain bins. Like it's, it's, it's just kind of mind-blowing that such yeah. a good record all the way through, like a gloss glam rock classic, and it's just kind of... Sitting there and rotting. Seems like the people who know it and have heard it love it. Yeah. Very few mixed reviews on it. Right, right. All right. The fifth song is Ernest Tubb with Thanks A Lot. That's exactly right. He's got a uh, fantastic uh, uh, record shop. Well, the record shop is okay, but it's just a fantastic museum or something to go to to in Nashville. He's got a tour tour bus inside. It does, yeah. It's very cool. All right. And the last song, which... I assume you just kept on here just to, to make make me angry or trip me up. That's a song I played, uh, I think, last episode or maybe two episodes ago. That is Bobby Charles with Street People. Sometimes we record these pretty quick, and we have to already be prepared for yeah. them. So I was not planning on that. This so. is true. This is true. <laughs> All right. Yeah, that's it. You did a really good job. Yeah, that was um, that was that was a fun one. Great, great songs. Yeah. So good stuff. Go ahead and go ahead and give my little disclaimer that you should be going out and buying records. Go ahead. Go buy a record. Go buy a record tomorrow. Go buy a record this weekend. Whenever. You know, make sure you're supporting people who make music and people who sell music and people who produce music and all the stuff it comes to. You know, we do we do this this podcast because we love music. And if uh, the artists who are providing us with this stuff don't can't live off it, then we're not going to have this sort of stuff to talk about and enjoy. Also, uh, we would love it if you uh, joined us on Twitter and Facebook. We have Twitter feed. Um, our handle is at Highway Hi-Fi Pod. We have a Facebook page. We've got a Google Draw, uh, Google Sites website. Come over, um, find any of those. We're we're on them quite a bit, doing a lot of stuff. We'd love to have you in any conversations or starting conversations. Anything you want. We also have an email address: uh, Highway Hi-Fi Podcast at gmail.com. Send us in any suggestions you have. Anything really. If you have an idea for something you want research, but you're too lazy to do it, send it to us. We'll do it if we like it. Uh, also, if you get a chance, please go to iTunes. I don't know why this is so important, but it is. Go to iTunes and leave us a review. Um, stars and reviews just really seem to, to push notice of the po- podcast out to a lot of other people, which is what we want and what I, I would hope some of you want, too, if you've made it this far. Yep. So I guess uh, there's only uh, only one more thing to say. Live long and prosper? Yeah, yeah, that would work too.
Okay. Okay. We'll see y'all later. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.